Good morning and welcome. This is Tavo DRC, Servant Leader from the DFW Leader Ministry Online Fellowship at onlinefellowship.us. We're here today just to, to discuss servant leadership. What is the difference between choosing to serve the Lord and honor Him in a manner like Paul? Now, this is my opinion, and I'm submitting it to the Christians who say they're born again, who believe the Bible of all colors, because we're a diverse ministry. Whether you like it or not, or whether we look like it or not, we've always been sent historically to build bridges and to connect with different races and parts of the body, even around a region. I'm explaining it because many people, some people are just sort of legalistic, they're tame. They're stuck in their region, and they think that's the way it is everywhere, and it's not. I've lived in a Dallas Metroplex, and I've lived in Cosmopolitan Norfolk Naval Base, Virginia, Virginia Beach, most of my life. Then I lived in a more central location of central Virginia, which is much more rural, not a cosmopolitan area. And then, yet it was the seat of government. And then I'm living now on the East Coast, a labor across the paths of whomever the Lord would send. I'm over here on the East Coast again with the South Carolina, North Carolina region. And to me, it's it's a good combination. It's got the piece of the not being a metroplex, but it has the very cosmopolitan area of Charlotte. And I just like that combination. But I'm a more down-to-earth, natural person trying to be natural, not always normal. Wish I could have been normal. You know, my natural self said, man, why can't I be normal? But I've been natural, and I enjoy being just down to earth with other people of similar thought and actions, and I think I've found it. Pretty much found that kind of ministry out here on the the coast. But we're for the body, we're for different seasons, and we've been through years of being connected for the sake of the Lord, the gospel, and then being disconnected, not by choice, but by bias generation, anti-generation bias, ageism, as well as gender bias, mainly more than any other kind. And it was never a dark-skinned, black-skinned person that did that, had that bias toward me. They were the opposite. But instead, or even ageism, but it was the other kind, my own Western European background, who are Christians. So we learned to know at least through that experience how bad and wearing and unrespectful, disrespectful, even demeaning it is when people are racially biased, culturally biased, through ignorance or preference. And that's what got me so really fired up to teach against racism and bias in Christian ministry because it's like a form of accusation. You feel it, you perceive it because people are human and also they're made with God's big gifts inside and you don't have to be told it, you just know it because that person radiates that coldness, that aloofness, that superior pride, whatever. So racism to me is the big deal. It is a huge deal because it projects rejection and accusation just for your outer court earth suit. However, the same thing applies to projecting rejection and accusation toward people who are looking different from you or maybe weight issues, health issues, deformity issues, gender, lifestyle, appearance issues, maybe different cultures with different preferences for their choices of how they dress, wear their hair. All these are big deals in the relationship field of ministry to which I am called primarily first to know Jesus Christ as my Savior, to accept Him and have my ongoing relationship with the Lord, and then to learn to be more like Him and love Him with first love every day. Then also to read the Bible, abide by it, but not make it a religious rule book, a thou shalt not holier than thou type of, you know, Phariseeism that accuses. You know, I'm hearing myself talk, and the basic word is don't accuse. Assess, assess repeatedly, evaluate, take stock. You don't want to go into compromise or be into sin. 
but you don't have to be holier than thou and self-righteous. To me, that's the bottom line right now in these days. How can you not compromise? How can you not be an accuser, represent the Messiah who never accused in Isaiah 11, 2 and 3, the prophet, the office prophet of the whole world's global ministry, the church, the Christian church, the office prophet and apostle, teacher, evangelist and pastor, overseer, never accused. You can even get scripture for that. He was down to earth. Isaiah 11, 2 and 3 talks about the foretold prophet Messiah who would come and he would have all of God's seven spirits. That means the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts wrapped up in human form supernaturally, but without a carnal ego. He would have all of God's power, wonder-working power, miracle-working power, invisibly inside, like the book of Acts, but without speaking in an unknown prayer language. And so he would be born out of the Sephardic Jew, Middle Eastern. He was not white, Caucasian. I want to make that plain. And he was tribal, global, and a missionary from the beginning, but not into structure, strict formalities of religious rules following, people-pleasing like Phariseeism, like the Pharisees of the day, like many are. So when we look at the, the model we each carry in our minds, in our subconsciences, in our Christian carnal or spiritual visions of what who Jesus is, why he was here, was he a pastor, was he a prophet, was he in science, would he like science, you know, basic facts and attitudes. We have to know that nobody knows it all, but we know that out in the population, there are different mindsets, even mind fields that run amok in turn toward religion, new age, get confused, but also get within Christians, Bible beat down people, people who are rude and haughty to other people not like them, not servant leadership. So we come back to the basic question, who is and what is a servant leader? I like to think that it's a person who's sent by God, a sent messenger, who really knows the Lord in secret and is always perceptive and watchful for other people, how they act and react to the other person, toward the other person in ministry and in private life, even in their family. Are they valuing everyone as equal, equal opportunity, real respect for the, for the office of every human made in God's image? That's my message. I came out of the last 15 years before, you know, after going through Texas, I realized, you know, we've got to train Christian leaders on the basics. What is being respectful? What is honoring People that are not that are different just because God made them, whether they're your faith, your style, your look, or they look different or from another nation. We've got to work on that and train our children. It is just in certain places a real nightmare of imperception, imperception and lack of discernment, and it's very troubling because it usually f- you find the same kind of fruit. In the lost first love lampstands, people who don't have a first love, maybe they used to have a first love, maybe they never had a first love with the Lord. Now they're into works, building, achieving their ministry, their goals, their life. It's an attitude. It's a it's a desert attitude or life attitude, depending upon your choices. So when you find people who are achieving, building, relentlessly focused on their job, their ministry, their view of Christ following, you're going to find this competition, turf protecting, religious spirit, and also the dry spirit, the lack of love, the lack of a perceptivity of being able to get fresh wisdom from the Lord many times, not always, but you're going to find the lost first love lampstand that Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit wrote to addressed and rebuked openly in Revelation 2 chapters 2 of verses 2 through 7, where he says, yes, I know your hard works. I know your great, you know, all the sacrifices, how you withstood and, you know, different things you've done well. But you've lost your first love and you're in danger now because you've chosen to get hard, 
caustic, even toxic. You have no relationship with me. You're all about you. You're all about building, attaining my four and no more. Let's get my people. Let's get my collections together. Let's make it big. Then because you've gotten tough and you're abrasive, you don't know you're projecting, typecasting, stereotyping to the visitors, the new people. You've got your witch watchers set up. You've got their performance set up. It's all looking really good and snazzy. But you don't really know me. You don't sit with me and let me talk to you and and just privately with you because you're too busy. You're too big. You don't think like that now. And God warns that that, that uh, lost first love leadership group. He says, be careful if you don't repent and go back to your first love. I'm going to remove you from your job from your leadership, from your position in me as an office leader. God forbid. I've talked about it many times. I've had so much wildness in my private life. I haven't. I need a book. I need people to lift this up. That I have so many things that could be a book to help people, but it's going to take energy, focus, the right people to help me with the right disposition. But, but anyway... If you look at the lost first love lampstand, to me, the equivalent in the Old Testament is the LP Levitical Patriarch, Eli, the Temple I priest. He was middle-aged, jaded. He accused the lone woman who came without a husband on the front step just because she was weeping. She was really being, you know, his future mother Hannah to the first prophet of the nation of Israel. But the, the seasoned Eli had gotten caustic, jaded, compassion fatigued. And when he was out taking a break on his lunch break or sitting in the sun for a few minutes on the temple steps and he see the lone woman, his accuser of the cistern kicked in, his jaded perception from many experiences, oh, you look, it's one more of those, one more of those mean, sorry for themselves, overly emotional sisters coming to take my time, wear me out, drain me with her chatter, you know, he couldn't he wouldn't know if this lady had been through emotional violence abuse like some people are so clueless now it's all about them it was about eli and his being drained his emotional protection self-guarding and his disdain and disrespect demeaning view of females of women certain kinds of women he didn't like what he saw because the first thing he thought was oh no she's drunk accusing when really he should have gotten up he could have gotten up as a christian as a you know he wasn't a christian but he was a believer in the yahweh he could have gotten up for the office position and gone over to say what's wrong with you sister showed empathy compassion but he was full of self his own misogynistic ministry people pleasing why do I say that? All right. Let me first talk about Eli. Eli first accused the lone woman. However, then he kicked in his real loving side. His his call kicked in and he gave her a prophecy that she was going to bear a son. Turned out that son was going to be Samuel, the first prophet of the nation of Israel. However, when you look at the backstory of Eli, it was unclean. A lot of unclean. There was misogynist, disrespect, user, uh, emotional abuse, physical abuse, and using women for sex. In his two associate ministers, which were his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. When you read through the book of 1 Samuel, you'll notice that those two sons who used the women slept with the women who came to the temple door, it says. It was well known in the area, their reputation ruining God's reputation. No fear of the Lord, but the carnal, selfish priesthood. And then they also abused taking up the offering by putting pressure on the people to give the offering, and then they took it for themselves. It says about the sons of Eli, they were called the sons of Belial, or Belial, that means the devil, the son of devil himself, because of what they did in to spite the name of the Lord. With no holy fear of the Lord, no conscience. They were jaded and toxic. And through that lesson of the lost first love lampstand and their lively, you know, their way of doing their life, 
you'll find that there is a lot of need to own and possess stuff and people to control. And then a lack of empathy and caring on Eli, the high priest, the head of the whole group, for taking ownership and feeling responsible before the Lord to set his sons straight and set them down if necessary and re- and rebuke them for doing what they did. But instead, he was either scared of them, maybe they were controlling and mean to him, ornery, and he was just scared. He didn't want to you know, get in a fight and ruin the family. Whatever it was, Elah was weak. He was just plain old weak, and he had gotten overweight. He had not worked on his natural self-management, self-control, and whatever it was, if you read the first five chapters of the book of Samuel, that was the sign of the lampstand being removed. God sends an unknown, faceless, nameless prophet We don't know who this person was, but out of the woodwork of their lives, here comes the prophet and he gives the word of the Lord to the overweight Eli. And he says, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has been removed from this nation because of you and nobody will live in your, you will all die. And every, no, there'll be no one left in your family who will ever sit on the, in the office of the high priest temple, high priest again. Sure enough, that's what happened. Eventually, the two sons were killed. When Eli gets the message and the word they both died, he falls off the bench and he's overweight and breaks his neck. And the glory of the Lord had departed from Israel. And you can see that misogyny means woman-hating. It means woman who is human, made by God, made from the from Adam's DNA in his rib, so she's not second class, second rate, or chattel to be used, but to be respected and valued. That misogyny means woman, anti woman. So there was anti woman accusation with Eli, with the compassion fatigued sons who used women and abused women for their own sake instead of treating with righteousness and respect the ladies and women who came to God's house. And that still goes on now. It still is going on now everywhere. So we just submit this, that I believe that we're in the time of God's justice. I believe we're in a new day that God is not going to settle for secondhand servanthood or third or fourth, second class, third class, fourth class leader, office, servanthood. But you know what? I've had this word since I've been in ministry all my life. And I had this word before I left for Texas. I had this word, a warning in 2020, excuse me, 2000. I had the word of the Lord that God, and I put it out in a newsletter, my last, one of my last encouraging, I used to have the encouraging word newsletter, and I put that last newsletter, a physical newsletter, back when you mailed it and you had your 5013C, 5013C postal permit, packaging it and getting it out printed, physically printed, that was way long ago. So I remember getting a word of the Lord and printing it. And it was, God is not going to, when God really moves, he is not going to settle for what he used to in all of us. And this is for leaders and ministers. He's not going to settle for what he used to. That's what makes me look at me. I want God to reveal to me what I'm doing that I need to make a you know, missing omission, commission, whatever, that I'm leaving where I shouldn't do it. I'm letting God I don't want to go. You know what I mean? I don't want to go unless it's my time. So I have always, historically, and I did my newsletter in the Encouraging Word from the 1986 or 7 to 2000, every two months, for leaders and myself. I have to live it, and whatever I give, whenever I speak, whenever I minister or write, or speak, I have to always look at me. God has made me do that. I always have to do that because I have to live it as well, or I've already lived it if I am not living it now. So we're trying to submit Selah's because we know a lot of people have a lot of different, really smart revelation and ministry experience and knowledge that is so true that is really right. So when I speak, I'm speaking candidly. I'm speaking 
it sounds like I'm upset. I'm not upset with any individual. I'm not upset because I don't have a pure heart. I'm upset. I'm upset because I'm reproving at the leading of the Lord to get everyone stirred up to think like Jesus when he walked into the complacent system of the Pharisee house that was intent on keeping their self-preservation and their money, their perks and their power and their position because they didn't want to be usurped by the real Messiah, Jesus Christ. So I will have that not so sweet baby Jesus like everybody now, especially the <laughs> people who need their income. I will be temple grown-up Jesus walking in there at the leading of the Lord servant leader and I will just toss over whatever temple the system legalistic systems props their doctrinal habits as God tells me to do make a show of them openly am I against those people who are in those systems no do I have unforgiveness and bitterness and grudges toward them? No, but they want me. They want you to think that because they like to. That's how they keep their thing going. They are in denial that they want to. That they prefer their own selves. They're not really cross-body community. Ephesians four, Ephesians five, twenty-one, basic James three, seventeen, easily entreated types. They're not respectful to all. Just their style. And because I am for the body of Christ, men and women, black and white, old and young, I prefer to let the every man and the every minister weed this out. And you can hear if I'm mad and unrighteous or just plain old fired up because it's time for the system to go down. And they've already gone down before COVID. Now let's see what's going to happen on the other side. And I don't mean that mean because we want people to have order. God wants you to have infrastructure. But as T.D. Jakes, the bishop himself said, when the Lord led me over there in about 2005, 2006, when I was just new in Texas, I'd seen him on television. He had blessed me in my life when I'd going through some really hard endurance trials when I was on the East Coast. So I went out there to visit and the Lord led me there the very day that Bishop Jakes, with a group of 19,000 back then, made this comment, which is exactly what is up my alley. He said, when you grow to have a church and ministry this large, you have to have infrastructure, but you have to let it be revealed infrastructure. You just don't do it. You have to let God reveal it. And then, I don't know if he said this, but it was my... Maybe he did say it. Maybe he didn't. Maybe I thought it because I think like that him. <laughs> he says, but then you have to keep in touch with God to make sure you're doing it well. He may want you to adjust things and change it so it's not a hardcore bureaucracy. That part is my thinking, I believe, because I think I've met. I've met repeatedly too much ministry, hardcore, unthinking Immovable bureaucracies, which before COVID were like systems etched in concrete, no fear of the Lord, cranking out a rhythm to keep their income, their people being coming back, I think. So it was not a warm experience. Now, over at Bishop Jake's back then, I haven't been, you know, I just have to give honor, but I didn't. It was so far away and I had other things, a lot of attack. Plus, I felt the ministry was healthy. <laughs> really, I don't need to go where it's not healthy, where it is healthy. The physician was not needed. I could grow. But what I found was out in the fruit of his ministry was real peaceful, loving, and they really knew the power of God and the holy fear of the Lord, most of them. I don't know everyone in the group. It's that big. I wasn't there every time, but to me it was very impressive. And then I did go... Lord led me to the Frisco one on the National Day of Prayer in 2020, and I felt the same real respect for a new visitor, a real deep sense of the Holy Spirit and wanting Him. And it was a first love feel and the fear of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It was wonderful. So I don't recommend people by name, but I'm choosing to let you know, God wants me to let you know that I do. I'm for the body, all colors, and I'm for big, well-known names, persons, and 
no-name persons, male or female, because the Holy Spirit is not a respecter of persons. He is into building his kingdom, not anybody's personal ministry. And I'm for the latter part, bird I mean, I'm for building the kingdom, not having a big persona. There's a difference between having a renown, which is in the Bible, Zephaniah, Zechariah, one of those. You can have renown from the Lord, like Jesus had renown. They knew him after a while. Paul later had renown, but they weren't famous celebrities and not in a circus of tea, you know, ministry. So that didn't mean you, it's wrong to have big people, many people. It's right like Solomon. However, let me say this because I thought it. Do you realize that there would have been no Solomon had not God's people, the Israelites, Hebrews, complained to God and said, you're not enough. We want a king to be like everybody else, all the heathen nations. Do you realize that there would be no kings? There would be prophets and the Holy Spirit. So that's just a thought. There would be no excuse. Now I've got to be more acquiring and make it look big and paint a picture of my unsuccessful ministry because Solomon did it. That's my excuse to get five more Mercedes or whatever the biggest car is now. What are those ones now in the celebrities that it's a Magda or something like Magda? I don't know. any. I see it once in a while. <laughs> They'll say, well, I got a $400,000 car. See, I believe the opposite. I believe that it's time to... I'm ashamed of that, frankly, when Christians are like that. I think it's everyone mind your own business, but it's between you and God and a clean conscience, what you own, what you display, because it's private, and you don't want to flash big stuff in this last day's move of God. You don't want to be ostentatious and materialistic. In fact, to me, the sin of the, any prosperity teaching gone amok. I'm for believing, having faith for money, using it wisely, conditionally. The rule is, for me, there's nothing wrong with having Bible prosperity that starts inside and works to the outside. Inside, it means you're checking with God in a first love conscience lifestyle that is not into greed, competition, lasciviousness, wasting it, putting on a show. You're not doing it to be materialistic or greedy. You're doing it because God has revealed this is between you and him, what he wants you to do, whether it's really big or really small. And to me, that is in the spirit and the spirit can make big and mega and mighty and, you know, big stuff and big houses if he wants you to have it for his glory, to mystify people. Because people, God can make somebody poor, mystify them by using a poor person, very poor, with no outward display of funding. But he can mystify and use people that are proud to bring, you know, to mystify. And he might, to the poor person, using a poor person that has no funding, maybe to bring forth the critical spirits and the comments from the Christians who are so full of themselves and proud, expose their hearts in ministry. Maybe he could go the opposite and say he's going to cause some with a huge following, a huge ability to buy stuff, have huge provision to confound the other end. Oh yeah, you know, they're just spending it all. They're just materialistic when you don't know their hearts. And that's what I get out of the last 30 years of TV ministry and the, in America, that critical, complaining, murmuring spirit. And that's why my sage wisdom is to say, M-Y-O-B, let's just mind our own business. It is your business, what you do, your deal, let them do theirs. If you think they're at fault, go confront them. Respectfully, Matthew 18, 15, Galatians 6, 1, if it's in your business, confront them, write them a letter, but be quiet and stop murmuring on both ends of the spectrum. My belief is for me, godliness with contentment is great gain. Then the next rule is what does God say own? Then own it. What does he say not own? Don't own it. And then don't be sure you're not, be sure you're not into greed, covetousness, lasciviousness, and competition or being mercenary. The first love lifestyle is a relationship first with the Lord and the Holy Spirit and the Bible, then other people, your family first, your spouse first, then other people. 
But there is a relationship with money. It's the relationship with money. It looks like the relationship with money is the root of all evil. Relationship with money. Money puts pressure. It puffs up. It can make you feel angry, make you feel lost, make you feel poor, make you feel mean, make you turn abusive because you don't have enough. It can cause divorce. It could cause child abuse. It can cause tr sexual traffic. You need more money using anybody. There's a lot of stuff on the relationship with money that I've learned in my life. And I don't want to fall for it because we're only passing through. One of the things I couldn't get into is the lack of community and family feel where I just lived for 15 years of my life. Over, I tithe my life to be down there from the Lord as an apostle. I sent one for two times and a half of my life down there. And all I felt was, <laughs> in the Christian sense, it was mercenary. Every level was, mer almost every place, you couldn't get past the need to put on a show of what you had, who you were, your position, how much you owned, where you lived, what you drove. It was just, and I will use this term, I don't mean to accuse, but to me, because I've been around, I was not raised poor, I was not raised wealthy, but I came from, I guess you'd say they were not nouveau riche. We weren't so poor that when we got money, we had to show it off and display it. But I think a lot of that we're seeing with TV-affected ministry is by mistake, and America, not into, you know, people just affected by television and the wherewithal of the Hollywood, everything else for the last many decades and Madison Square Avenue advertising. This is just the bottom line. I think we're just all, you know, a lot of people are nouveau riche. That means they gotta, they're focused more on money than on the love of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, our nation needing holy repentance and revival. So I'll submit that as a sila, a sober, sober wake-up call for the Christian ministry because you're not responsible for the non-believer. This has nothing to do with the non-believer, the non-Christian. Oh, no. Every word I say, every word I write, every word I pray for, every word I give a word of the Lord, written or verbal, it is for and to the Christian who believes that Jesus is their Savior and that they believe the Bible, that they're born again. So you all, I submit it to you with great respect, men and women. But, you know, this life is not going to be easy. It doesn't have to be easy, but we can make it simpler and more fun to follow Christ if we get off our legalistic ministry high horses and we sort of tame down some of this display of mercenary achievement and make it more about the holy fear of the Lord. I would suggest everybody for revival, get ready, get out your YouTube and perhaps review. If you don't know much about him, you don't have the fear of the Lord and get out your YouTube and look up Google Reverend Billy Graham and watch two of his crusades or more to see what that is. What is the holy fear of the Lord? What is reverential what is repentance? What is the need of the word to have this in America today for our society to be preserved and your Christian faith to be allowed to be tolerated and respected on this land? And this is not about the Bible, but it is about the Bible. It's about the eternal perspective that is for every Christian New Testament believer. It has to be in the message somewhere about that. It has to include a little, a lot of Billy Graham, but yet without being Billy Graham, you want to, you know, and, and without being religious about it. We don't want it to be religious. And I'm not putting anyone down. I'm just saying it's so desperate. It is just concerning me that a lot of believers, after I left to come up here for the first, last 15 years, I was for the only time in my life, not now, not this second now, but from 2005 to, to pre-COVID 2020 when I left, I had a fear, a real fear and concern for the Christians who said their ministries saved Christians in ministry if they're going to be really saved, if they were really born again. The fruit was so unbelievably tough, toxic, suspicious, caustic, lack of genuine true holy fear of the Lord faith it was shocking so therefore my message at the leading of the Lord in 2020 was the wake up call my word before this 
my word for 2020 was for ministry. I get a word every year for the Christian ministry. And before knowing about COVID, I got the word 2020 clear vision, that ministry, Christian ministry would want to have real vision about what is really true about life, Jesus Christ, being born again, having a ministry, what is really true, what is make-believe, fantasy, what is toxic, what is valuable, what is eternal, what is organic, meaning without any human synthetic false additives. That didn't mean everyone's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Everybody's got some error, but there's a lot more error than one would think, especially if you don't know if you're a legalist. You don't know your Bible. You've just led, you've been led by the Lord listening to everybody's one group, one famous pastor, bishop, or prophet's flow. You only listen to that style, but you've never listened to the Bible. You've never read the Bible or listened to anybody else and discovered the Lord for yourself. You might have an original teaching ministry if you do that. So beside the word of the Lord for 2020, 2020 clear vision for ministry, I've been getting concerned. One of the phrases I remembered making a JPEG, I've used it lately, online it says, God originally sent, he gave the gospel to the ignorant, untrained men. The people who are not educated got, were the first church. There's nothing wrong with having no education. It's nothing about your background. It's what you do with it or do not do with it. Or if you're going to know the rules or you're going to know Jesus or the rules. So mine was, the phrase was from the Lord, God first gave the New Testament church, the he entrusted the good news to the first church that were ignorant and untrained men. However, he didn't surely intend for them to stay that way. In other words, there are people who can be clueless about other centric ministry or not being biased or not being religious but because they don't even try, they, they've they never had it hard. Or maybe they've had it too hard. They've never grown up to be balanced in their teaching and really respect people. So that's why I teach on abiding relationship theology to Christian ministers. I'll be glad to train you and your group if you want it. A workshop against bias, legalism, back under the law, how do you tell and about abiding relationship theology, which is my call. Abiding in James 3.17, you'll never need to be mean if you all abide. If we all will go to God with his help to, to remain in James 3.17, even under pressure, even under heavy pressure and stress, to resemble the word of the Lord, wisdom of God, which is pure, peaceable, easily entreated, full of mercy and good fruit without partiality and without hypocrisy. And to the best of my ability, I'm working on that and have and try to model James 3.17 every time my whole life, especially in a Christian church or anything. However, the word of the Lord I'd gotten in 2019 before covid Who'd have thought? I never knew I'd be on the East Coast getting to leave. I didn't know I'd get to leave and be liberated from deep down south. Toxic Christ following in certain kinds of ministry, the Jezebel spires, the tough customers. I didn't know I'd get to leave. Praise God. But I knew God was not happy because I'm a prophet. I'm one of his prophets. And I, if I see things that trouble him... He will tell me, if you see something that troubles you or hurts somebody, hurts my good name, I want you to teach on it if you see it three times or more. Well, I had seen all this stuff, I mean, decades of this collectively. I would seen it how many times? 200 times, easily, around the United States, because I'm a sent messenger. One of his, you know, just down to earth, but myself, but having been this record of doing it. So in 2019, I always get concerned for the future of the church, the future of America. I always have. How can people tell there's a real Christian anymore with media, all the weird stuff out there, their mama, all the, you know, all the different personifications of who Jesus is, what a Christian is, and all the different styles that beat people down with the Bible pickets at funerals, all the stuff that people see every day, call people Jezebels online, they have hate speech to the homosexuals, all these things that are, you know, horrible stuff, but the media does it, 
and innocent people are confused, too confused. Well, in I was meeting my own different relationship fruits, not where I worked out, not where I wrote a lot at the Barista Fellowships. That was probably my safe community, really. Genuine, a lot of Baptists, a lot of people who are natural, and also people who are true and also multicultural. I feel better with multicultural. So one day, September 20, September 19th, 2019, I feel the Lord impress me. I want you to read Acts 2. Well, I know Acts 2 is the upper room, 120 gathered, the Holy Spirit comes, they speak in tongues, flames of fire are upon their heads, they're getting filled and imbued with the Holy Ghost. And therefore, I thought of that. I also thought of the phrase, oh, a rush, they heard a rush of a mighty wind. So I expected to read down the chapter like usual and see the word rush of a mighty wind. However, when I read down the chapter that I was familiar with, when I saw the word rush, it would turn into the word flush. And the Lord told me in the spirit, he said, I'm going to have, there's going to be a flush of my mighty wind, a flush to cleanse and refine the character of ministers, of Christian leaders, of Christians. And sure enough, this is what happens. Therefore, I am ramping it up at the leading of the Lord. I've been ramping it up about this accuser teaching of seeing Jezebels on first visitor, on newbie visitors, and all this weirdness that has made Jesus Christ following, trying to obey, submit to Hebrews 10, the Pauline injunction to fellowship with the saints, don't forsake it, impossible. Instead, since 2000, really the late 90s, when I noticed this critical spirit coming of Phariseeism, religious spirit, counting who's over whom, and are they church hoppers, and, you know, getting down on the young people and the old, I found out that, man, God kept putting in my heart. He would reveal. He talked to me. He said, this is like the Friendly Fire Fellowship of 2 Timothy 1 through, let's see, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. They're from such turnaway fellowship. I gave a word of the Lord, a warning in 2007. 2011, I got another warning. It says, this is no, to the church, this is no longer buyer's market. This is no longer a seller's market like real estate. It's no longer a seller's market. It's a buyer's market. People are offended, upset, afraid, weary, tired of drama, tired of being accused. They watch the media. Oh yeah, we don't want to go to those Jezebel speakers. We don't want to go to those homophobes. I was out there on the front lines in the Bristol Fellowships time after time, day after day, and I'd meet people who were affected by the media and had been afflicted by the Christian, the born-again Christian. If I said to a gay person, whom I respect because they're passionate. They're not lukewarm for their beliefs. I respect them as a human made in God's image. I don't believe their theology. I don't condone it. You know, I'm not their Their theology is different, but I respect them. I enjoy hearing them and a lot of them are fun. So I was talking and when I said I'm a, if I'm, a, you know, if I mentioned that after a while that I'm a born again Christian, you can tell their hackles get up. They're ready to, some of them were ready to be hate speeched. Some of them were you know, tired of all this crap, excuse me, all this stuff, and they were ready to have, let me have it. But you know what? I loved them. I respect them. They didn't let me have it. But I really understood why they feel so besieged, because media. And then their relatives, this one person in Murphy had, had had, he came to interview and I got to quit soon. He came to interview for me as a transcriber. And when he came, I thought it was a female writing the email to accept the appointment. And he comes to meet me at the coffee shop. And he's this giant, you know, very large, mature male and with a Hawaiian shirt on. And so I said, are you a Christian? This is a Christian ministry. And he said, well, I used to be a Christian. Turned out he was a homosexual. So I thought, well, let me hear your story. So I wanted to know about him. So he said, yeah, I was a Christian, but I went to the Catholic school up in the north. My father was a huge donor. They had lots of money. However, when I was 14, the priest started to rape me. And he raped me every day. 
And then when I told my father and a few years later, my father started to do it. So those are his background. Man, I wouldn't want to hurt anybody if they've been through that. No wonder they're confused. But that wasn't it. That wasn't all. He went down to, he moved to later to North, to California where he cooked and baked for the AIDS, dying AIDS hospice. Because he's a good baker. Very intelligent, very gifted man. So he had a heart of compassion and other of ministry. So he and his partner moved to Murphy, where I met them, and they were building their dream house so that they could purposely live near the relative of the, the older parents, the aging parents of the partner, and take care of them, that ministering spirit. And so I would, you know, I was asking, he said, but then when I worked, they would leave tracks on my desk anonymously, they had the contractor who said they were born again take their money and refuse to give it back. And when they asked for it back and complained, the lady, it was a lady, said, oh, well, I'll just pray for you. So all these things build up. That's the point. You don't know how bad or how good people have had it when you minister or you love, try to respect them. You need to get a feel for it and say, you know, am I going to add be one, you know, you want to have a heart attitude that cares, that really loves them and respects them. To me, I think respecting people is the first line of love. And then you don't have to say a thing. They're going to know it if and get it if you respect them because they've been so disrespected and demeaned. It goes for a person from another nation, another faith in America. It goes for many people who are single parents, singles, as well as people who are black skin, dark skin, Hispanic. You want to really not re be rude. You want to really equal opportunity, real respect, because they'll perceive it. If they've been burned, their perceiver, their inner knower is ready to protect them. And that is how you do it. Like I said, I respect all the faiths. I respect Hindus and Buddhists and gays and LGBT. I, I respect these ones I meet, at least, because they're not af afraid to let you know who they really are. They're not playing around with games. They're not putting up a false front. They let it out because they're not compromising. They're not lukewarm. And that's why I get so excited. I think, man, we're the Christians like that. We're the Christians that are not legalistic and we're the leaders that are not, are not lukewarm playing it safe, okay? So if I get strong, it's because I'm concerned for the future of all these people, all these different styles, and the health of our nation, the future of the body of Christ. Who will be there when they said two years ago, one group let me know that I think they had a million millennials said they ne they're going to drop out of the Christian faith and they would never come back within the next, I think by 19, 2034, that a millennial million would be gone from the Christian church forever. So what are you going to do? They take their kids, their grandchildren with them. And how are you going to woo them back? You're going to be loving. You're going to make sure Jesus is altogether lovely, not a hate speecher, not a stormtrooper, not a religious right, not one that bites you in the back that you can't trust, not a money, not a money manipulator, con artist, not a showbiz hypocrite and I'm not calling people that are well-known hypocrites at all I honor them really I honor them it's the ones that trade on their names to look good down at the grassroots where I meet them that I'm a, you know I'm teaching this for anyway God is good this is a whole new move it's the love of God the person of the Lord the person you know but not our person not our personality it's the lord himself and to know him as a person a gentleman as a respectful multicultural not white but from the middle east brown-skinned tribal global respected his mother his mother he respected everybody how do you do that how do you tell who christ was anymore how do you really tell him how do you tell people how do you figure it out for yourself what a minister is in the first church sense. How do you figure it out with all this legalism and lying and tells of tales and pomp and ceremony? How do you tell it? How do you tell what's legalistic and what's true? I would say 
just go back to the beginning. Go back when Jesus Christ was in ministry, walking the earth, and look at his relationships. Read everywhere, everywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every relationship Jesus ever had with soldiers, with his mother, with the children, with the Pharisee, with the Sadducee, with the person who fell, the woman, the male, all these people, and then just act and react like Jesus. That's my abiding relationship theology the Lord gave me. He gave it to me. I didn't figure it out. He just had me stumble upon it one day by in our relationship, by His grace. So abiding in James 3.17, E-O-R-R, these are all tied in with that because you can't get along if you don't represent the wisdom of God if you're a Christian minister. The wisdom of God, James 3.17, is first of all pure, peaceable, easily entreated, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality and without hypocrisy. E-O-R-R, equal opportunity, real respect for the office of every human made in God's image. Even if you don't say a word, you just respect them, they're going to know it through osmosis. That is to me the first line of love, of witnessing. And if God opens a door and reveals a message and they'll receive it, lovingly in James 3.17 format, then give it. Otherwise, don't. It's not our business to see people get people born again. It's our hope. We hope they'll do it. But, you know, I can see why they have a lot of reservations, frankly. So mine is to say, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit, I'm going to do my part by loving them and sharing if, if God wants. But I'm going to let God tell them. I'm going to let God convince them, not me. And I'm going to work on the Christian. My work our work here is really to make sure I'm doing the job right for me. Am I being mature? Am I being emotionally, James 3.17, respectful? Am I living the life? Am I playing the part or really living the life, talking the talk or really, you know, loving God with a first love lifestyle? And when I work on me, as God works on me, I work on sharing that word and giving you the word of the Lord as I feel it to old and young, all colors, and submitting it to you is sila, not dogma. Because you got to hear it for yourself because there are too many missionaries, too many ministers out there that you got to figure out by yourself from the Lord what is really true, what He really wants you to do. And I live like that, so I understand. And that's why I want you to hear God. It's part of working out your own salvation. It's part of being like Paul. Paul praised the noble Bereans for choosing to pick apart his teaching to see if it really matched up with the Bible of their time. They were new, new, the Jews, you know, noble Berean Jews. He called them noble for doing that. Paul said, I never arrived. I've never attained. And he was always concerned for his own humanity that he would. That's why he didn't want anyone to put him on a pedestal or make a big deal about him and to really pick apart what he said to make sure he was right. And that's why I do it right now. That's my submitted sila style. Anyway, God is good. His mercy endures. I have to close this down. We're going to run out of tape or whatever they call this MP3 stuff, digital whatever, quota. And I'm going to close off for now. God is good. His mercy endures. If you remember anything, get anything about it, just remember God is good. His mercy endures and he loves you and he loves me. He's not a Levitical patriarch. He's not down on your case. He's not a legalist. God bless you. Bye-bye.